0: Hi. So today, I am here with Tina Wells. Uh, I have to tell you that Tina, when I do these episodes, I um, yeah, I know most of the people have known them for some time. Uh, some people I've only known for a short time. Tina, I have known, I can honestly say, since she was a teenager. Sadly, I was not when I met her, but she was a teenager. And I say that because she has the most inspiring backstory what she has done at such a, a, a young age is nothing nothing short of incredible so she is the ceo and founder of buzz marketing group it's an agency that creates marketing strategies for clients within the beauty entertainment fashion finance and lifestyle markets i can say she also did that for the automotive market because that's when i met her um, she is the author of six books including the best-selling tween fiction series Mackenzie blue and the marketing handbook, Chasing Youth Culture and Getting It Right. I should say Mackenzie Blue is a an amazing series for when she says it's for tweens. It's really, I think it's for tweens. I think it's even for younger than that. These kids grow up so young these days, so I highly recommend that. She's also a member of the 2017 Class of Henry Crown Fellows and the Aspen Global Leadership Network at the Aspen Institute and the academic director of Wharton's Leadership in the Business World Program. In 2018, she also joined the board of Thinks as an independent director, and she's the winner of countless awards, is a longtime friend, as I've mentioned, um, and I want to start by... Um, Actually, I've already given the big setup for being a teen and, you know, you having started a career when most people are worried about um, finding a boyfriend or girlfriend. And um, but I think that before we get there, I'd love for people just to hear a little bit about your early life, your childhood, because given what you do and sort of this urban culture and knowing, you know, being on the pulse of pop culture, it's a very ironic to me knowing where, how and where you grew up. So will you share?
1: <laughs> sure. And thank you, Julie, for having me. I'm happy to be here. And so I, I think you're talking about the joke I like to tell, which is that I became like America's trend spotter. And I'm actually from Amish country. I'm from Lancaster, <laughs> yes. Pennsylvania, okay. um, which is it's funny. I'm spending a lot of time there right now um, with my parents. And so it's very interesting to come you know, back to the place that I'm from. And I, I am still like now I'm driving, so I'm passing horse and buggies on the road. And it's really like I was telling a friend, I'm like, it's kind of like living in the village, but being like in on it. Um, but it's it's a beautiful place. It's just a really different place to be from, you know, where, you know, what, what I think I gained the appreciation for was, you know, I didn't realize how connected to nature and being outside I am. I didn't even think that was a part of who I am. And then I just got back from Jackson Hole and I just realized how much I love being outside. But I think... um one thing that I love about being from Lancaster is just this connection to where your food is coming from and where things are coming from, and, and being very grateful for that open space. And then I, um, I'm i the oldest of six kids. Uh, mm-hmm. And so my dad was a pastor when I was growing up. And so uh, my friends would joke that we were across between the Cosbys and Seventh Heaven, which was very <laughs> accurate. Um, and I'm the oldest. And so, as my siblings like to say, I like to be the boss in every sense of the way of the <laughs> word, I guess. Um, and so, we were, you know, really tight knit group of six. You know, my youngest brother is nine years younger than me. And so, six kids in nine years, you know, it's really tight. And yeah. so, um, I've been yeah. very open lately about my dad's health challenges. And so, the six of us have been, you know, together quite a bit this summer. You know, I'm happy to say my dad's on the other side of his heart surgery and recovering, but it's meant a lot of time together back in Lancaster. So that's been been really interesting.
0: <laughs> how how so I know you were the oldest of six here in beautiful farm country and you sort of naturally evolved into sort of this position of um sort of the leader of the the family pack if you will. And your dad you you had um you I know your dad has the pastor background. Your mom has an interesting background, but I would you share a little bit about there's the differences between the
1: two of them in terms of how they were brought up and and therefore kind of how they look at life? Yeah, so, I mean, my parents can be more opposite. The fact that they have been together for 40 years, married for 40 years and friends for 47 is like... So crazy, interesting! It's right? crazy. A little um, applause for them. Yeah. But my my dad grew up kind of in in the city, with a single mom, um, only child. My mom grew up in Berlin, New Jersey, which is also, I think, at the time rural to becoming suburban. My grandfather built their ten bedroom home. Uh, she she's one of fourteen kids. You know, <laughs> so I have. I think the uh, the recent count is there are one hundred and twenty seven. Cousins on my mom's side. Omg, do you guys do a family oh, reunion? Yeah. Thanks. Well, no, Thanksgiving. That's what I thought. Everyone had a huge Thanksgiving. <gasps> I mean, the average size growing up, it was eighty people. You oh know, and God. three turkeys. So when I would see like on TV, like. Everyone's sitting around a table. I'm like, that's so interesting. <laughs> I never sat at a table for Thanksgiving ever, like literally ever. Um, no, I think once, once um I was like visiting my ex-boyfriend's family. But I was like, this is so interesting. You know, I'm used to like serving and it's like a big thing in my family to be asked to make something for dinner. And so year after year it was an Erica, like my younger sister, you're gonna make this. And then Tina, it'd be great if you could get everybody's coats when they come. And I'm like, not this year I'm not good enough and finally 80 coats that's crazy <laughs> just like, I wanted to be able to make something and finally I, I became known for my apple pie so I was very happy to get an, an item on the menu and then last year I hosted at my house and I actually made the turkey and it was like good and
0: you know okay, so was how many pounds of turkey must you make to feed 80 people?
1: Well, it was it was like less than that last year. So there was like maybe there were like maybe fifty of us, but <laughs> for the intimate Thanksgiving of fifty, how many <laughs> like t- pounds of turkey 18. do you have? To make? But I knew the thing that I was worried about was like it couldn't be frozen. So I, oh, I, I had heard be. horror stories of like not knowing you had to defrost the turkey, but it's everything else. I've been hosting like parties and dinners for a long time, so I knew do everything leading like don't leave anything for the day of but the turkey you can't really right. do so i was like how many ovens
0: out. wait a second this is mind-blowing like so you you have to be more than an 18 pound turkey for 50 people yeah, unless but, you people are just so not many... like my family where it's like four pounds a person
1: right so. no so then you have chicken and then there's oh, ham God. so you have to make a ham and then there are lots of other things that have to come okay so
0: so you don't so you like you don't need like 17 industrial size ovens to make that no
1: Okay. But then, I mean, and then when we were all getting together, everyone would be assigned things. So it was still cool. You were like bringing a dish, but it could be you were one of three turkeys. So Okay. Okay.
0: That makes sense. Yes. I know we veered now into Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner because I'm, I literally am envisioning this in my head. It was uh, quite quite the happening, that's for sure. So good. going back to your mom, this kind of where this all started with the 14 and then the 127, but your mom... Your mom and dad had the different parenting styles.
1: Oh, absolutely. I would always joke that I would come home from school and say I had gotten 110 on the test. And I'd show my dad and he'd say, that's great. But if the best you could do was a 70, I still love you and I'm really happy. And mm. I would kind of say, but I didn't get a 70. I got right. 110. That's so You should be great. ecstatic. Right? And then my mom would say what's the best you could do? <laughs> so I'm like, Mom, I'm like maybe 112, but this is really good. And she's like, okay. And so I think I benefited from both, you know, the kind of complete acceptance and yet being driven to do, you know, you know, to do the best job that I could do. Did your dad take,
0: um, I, you know, I know in my family, let me start with that. I know in my family, my dad, I don't want to say was like the Archie Bunker because he's not quite, he's not quite on that edge of, you know, Inappropriate, but it was a little like that. Where like my mom ran around doing stuff; she was the stay-at-home wife, and he would come home from dinner and sit in that like lazy boy with his paper and watch the. And so it was very traditional that way. So he he wasn't as involved in sort of the the you know certainly the kids or the family during the day. Was
1: was your dad like that? What was that like, experience? Complete opposite. It was really funny. I think because my dad um, grew up in such a small family, he really was so dedicated to the family that i can think back to growing up there are more nights during the week where he cooked dinner for us I, i would not say his dinner was better than mom's at all but like i remember once my mom she would go and like take some trips with her sisters and i remember him trying to do my sister's hair like so he was kind of all in and i joke now i'm like well the reason i'm not married i'm looking for someone that's going to be like as 50 50 as my dad has been and he's just was always like these are my children too like i hear some conversations about what i should do as a mom and i'm like my parents just like figured everything out together and they were always on the same page and what's interesting is when i like now being an adult and looking at how different they grew up and how different their kind of life philosophies were, it's really interesting to see how they came together and were always on the same page for the six of us. Like we always thought my mom was the tough one. And really, it's like, she was kind of laying down the law on behalf of my dad, who we never would have assumed had these like thoughts and about, you know, where we could go and where we could spend our time. And, you know, they were very united in that way. But he was always like he really delighted, I think, in in that part of us growing up because, you know, for him, he was creating that family that he didn't fully grow up with. And so, you know, he was very intentional around, you know, just participating with us.
0: And it obviously being the oldest, I'm sure that relationship is particular. not that it's not any more special with your siblings, (laughs) but there's, there's something about being the first and the oldest, I know. And you've said your, your sister says you were like the boss of all things all the time or some. Oh, yeah. It must have been There must have been something there that was um, linked to just how you took charge, not necessarily being bossy, but took charge and sort of were the leader. Did that come naturally for you or was that sort of just was that kind of put upon you because there were six and there was help needed? How did that
1: I think it was so natural. I mean, my mom went to work full time when I was 13. And mm-hmm. so I definitely don't think it was for lack of, like, not having both of the parents in the home. But my mom and dad joke, like, there was always mom, dad, and Tina on one side and then the other kids. Oh, that's but, <laughs> you know, I think Chris Rock has a joke where he says in, like, large families, the two oldest kind of raised the other four. And, and my sister, who's 18 months younger than me, we each, like, our youngest brother and youngest sister, we kind of took them under our wing. But we were... I think, very responsible for each other. But, you know, I think by by nature, sometimes the, the eldest, you know, I definitely took on the role of being the eldest and feeling super responsible for all of them.
0: I think it's, and I, I bring this up, and, you know, I always wonder if listeners just think I'm crazy, but I, I bring this up because I, I know what you've done, and I, I'm I'm going to ask you to share, but I think that so much of your youth informs... How you are? Um, both. I mean, we talk the entrepreneurial. I don't know where that came from, so I do want to find out about that. But, um, but I, I think that that responsibility and that um, that that feeling responsible and that so personal involvement probably I have to believe stems from that. Yeah, young experience.
1: I would say for all of us though. I remember my parents went out of town, and you have to imagine finding a babysitter for six kids wasn't the easiest thing. And so, especially in Lancaster. No, I mean we and we were by this point we we were all being raised in Southern New Jersey, closer to my mom's family, and we had one uncle who was like the fun uncle, and he would come to town for the weekend when my parents would go away or do something. And so, he told my parents, he said, you know, it's Saturday. We were ready to go hit the mall, and I got up, and your kids were like an army cleaning this house to perfection. And he was like, I was like, your parents aren't home; we can do it <laughs> later. And and they were like, No, this house has to be cleaned by eleven a.m., which was my mom's rule. And I remember telling her later, I'm like, Mom, you were that kind of mom. We're just for fun. You and Dad would have shown up at eleven twenty <laughs> when we were at the mall, and right. the house wouldn't have been cleaned. Right. So it, we just kind of knew what our responsibilities were, and I think. Because they were so aligned with that that there was there was no wiggle room for certain things. You know, and I think when it comes to career, we all have different types of jobs. and career and my parents were definitely super like laid back and open about us exploring the things we were interested in, they were not open and laid back about the rules of how their household, you know, was going to be run at all by any means. It was the law was the law. That's definitely for sure.
0: Well, and so you were so you were in southern I mean, were you in southern Jersey, close to Philly area?
1: Yes. By the time you're 13. So my um, earlier I was around, I think, six or seven. Uh, But strangely, four of us were born at General Hospital um, (laughs) in Lancaster. Four out of six of us were born there. But um, my grandfather, who was a pastor in Philadelphia, had gotten really sick. He had cancer. And um, my parents moved back to New Jersey so my dad could help him with his church. And so then we stayed. And and, I mean, I had, you know, 60 plus cousins in that area. And so it was great for us to kind of grow up with our family. And so, you know, being from a big family and then kind of incubated in this bigger family. And my mom is um, the 12th. Of the fourteen. so most of my cousins are significantly older too. So, yeah. it was great to kind of grow up in a place where, like, my cousin was our babysitter. You know, one of my older cousins is my one of my very best friends today. And so, um, it was a great. You literally had a village where they yeah, say it takes a village. You literally, literally had your definitely own. Definitely did. And then obviously an extended church community as well from my parents. And so, um, yes, we had a lot of people who were kind of interested.
0: <laughs> well, so now it makes a bit more sense to me knowing that you went into this sort of pop culture. Business as a as a teen mm-hmm. that you were in. You were in Southern Jersey, so you're 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 like you're suburb more or less of oh, Philly. Suburban. You know of yes. Philly, and you know you're close to the to the New York scene. What happened? I'm sure. I mean, look, teenagers are into pop culture, but what happened that made a that was a click for you? That was saying, I'm really good at this, and I can help others be better too.
1: So I don't, I did not, I always say I'm I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I thought I would end up being a lawyer or, or really I wanted to be an, um, an editor at a fashion magazine. I had no interest in marketing. I didn't even know what it was. I answered an ad in the back of Seventeen Magazine to write for a newspaper for girls called the New Girl Times. And how I got old a, were you? I was 15. Okay. So I got a job as um, a product review editor. And so I would literally do like review a product and it would end up in the newspaper and I would send clips back to the companies whose products I reviewed. And they'd always say the same thing. If I send you more product, will you tell me what you think? And so for me at 16, you know, I thought, okay, I'm the oldest of six. I love all of this stuff. My parents are going to take me shopping maybe three, four times a year at this point what a great way to get all the stuff I want, right? Uh, so it was not at all, I can make money. It was just, this is great. And then I had so I'm many... actually glad to hear that
0: because if you would have been like, so I had this design, I created a business plan, i had been like, okay, you're a freak of nature. No. So this is, I'm actually happy to oh, hear this was- absolutely <laughs>
1: not. I was like a completely pop you know, culture-obsessed teenager and had just literally had the perfect opportunity fall on my lap. And then what happened is the companies that were representing these brands were PR agencies. And so they started saying to each other, there's this girl. You just send her product and she'll tell you what you think. And so I, it was like, this was 1996. You have to remember, that this whole going online, being an influencer, none of that existed when mm-hmm. I started. So I was like the girl who you would call to help you launch a product. And I thought... Okay, this is like really cool. And, and you know, one of the first quote unquote clients I had was um, Jane Warwin, who's the founder of Dermalogica. And I remember I saw Jane a couple of years ago and I, w- I was talking to her and I'm like, Jane, I don't know who was crazier, you or me. She's like, Oh, no, I just knew. I just like knew you were going to do something huge. So I just went with it. I'm like, in hindsight, that was pretty crazy, you know? But I had a lot of women like Jane who were just like, Yep you're doing something great like i talked to the original essie of essie nail polishes i was like decided to like host this like fashion show and i don't know talk about the products i liked with my friends and and i called essie and i'm like well this person signed up to do this and this person's gonna do this and she's like and i'm gonna be your official nail polish i'm like okay great and i'm literally like i think i just talked to the essie of essie but these were like the female founders back in the mid 90s who were just like amazing people who were like yep let's just go for it and so I was really lucky to have those type of women who just said okay she's doing something interesting and I'm gonna go with it and so it was my freshman year in college where I started having groups of friends like fill out surveys and then I'd Like compile all the scores. Obviously, I was really, really good in math. And so I just thought this was an extension of like a fun survey. And I would compile them and send these reports back. And I had someone call me and say, I'm going to tell you something really important. Um, You know, I just paid someone $25,000 for market research. And what you and your friends did is 10 times better. You have a business, it's called market research, you should go figure it out. And as luck would have it, I was taking an, an intro to business course with the head of the business department at my my school hood college in frederick maryland and i met with dr joe's during office hours and i said i've been doing this thing and she kind of stared at me for a while and then she said you know what you should take an independent study with me next semester and let's see if we can make this a business and that's really i worked with her you know for 13 weeks on you know business plan marketing plan it, by this point it was 98 and so it was around the first like dot-com you know explosion yeah. and I was thinking of doing a fully dot-com company and she said absolutely not like I think that that's gonna explode in Thank a bad God. way like right wow. And she, I, I totally would have gone in a different direction she said you know build a solid you know bricks and mortar company and don't focus on that you're, you're there will be a place for it for online but this is what you need to build and so just kind of started from there so I was also really lucky to be at university at the time where I could reach out to professors and, and they really did help me kind of perfect the business model and still, you know, a big part of the model we're using today. And so, I mean, that all happened like very randomly. So there was no big plan. I remember my senior year of college, I I watched Legally Blonde and had decided I was going to be a lawyer. And so I'm sitting (laughs) with my advisor, I'm like, I've decided to go to law school. And he's like... Yes, you could do that. He's like, you can do whatever you want. Just make a decision. So then I said to him, I'm like, you know, I have this thing, and and that by that point I was um, working with Chrysler, and so right, that's where um, we met. Yes. Yeah. and so I was. Were we your first one of your first? Big yeah, ones? because I had. Huh? We were. Yeah, because I had ended up working with this like genius in advertising don coleman oh but don when it, don global when, hue right when it, before global hue oh. so i met them because i had like been the face of a business competi- plan competition and they were like we should talk you do youth research and i'm like and i'm in college right yeah. so i'm like okay great um and then i ended up like senior year of college i had a huge um verizon wireless research project and i'm trying to finish university and we're doing a lot mm-hmm. of interesting research and so And at that point, I was like, this might just be my hobby. And I remember talking to my advisor and saying, I don't want to be known as this girl who does read. Like, I didn't like the moniker. I didn't like the narrative, the Mm. PR narrative. Right. And I didn't even know enough to know that's what I disliked. Mm -hmm. And I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take one year and let's see if I can't make this something. And then if I do, I'll stick with it. And if not, I'm going to law school. And he was like, "Okay, that's a great plan. And then, you know finished college Uh, about a year later, I, well, I had, during college, I had spoken at this huge music industry conference and I predicted, um, unfortunately, um, I, kind of quite rightly predicted what was going to happen with um, music pirating. And I had done some research and found that 99% of teens had illegally downloaded within the last 30 days. They weren't going to stop. There are many very big, very established research companies who said only 17% of the population do this. This will not be a problem. Mm. So it turns out the head of research for Sony, BMG, was there. She called me up you know, post-grad. And she said, listen, I was there. You were the only one that told the truth and we should hire you. And so they were kind of my first major client. And then by 23, I'd opened up my office here. We were doing co-working before co-working was even a thing. You know, Mm -hmm. we were down on 34th between 10th and 11th. And then two years after that, I had the cover story in O Magazine, which was Mm -hmm. kind of like, the career explosion and right. then, you know, it kind of took off. So I kind of never went back to law school, although my lawyers always tell me that they feel like they're arguing with another lawyer when they're talking to <laughs> people. I'm like, could have been a lawyer. But um, yeah, it just kind of took on a life of its own. But, you know, it was, I, I often say we talk a lot about product market fit in our industry and where I was in 1996 if you look at culture it was you know in sync Britney Spears backstreet it, teen people teen vogue el girl oh, yeah. there was kind of a teen explosion that I kind mm-hmm. of got to ride that wave and now you know i think we're in our industry in a totally different place you know and i i just i'm literally in like the second week of my 6 month sabbatical figuring out you know what do i want to do next do i want to stay in marketing do i want to use my skills in a different way and so it you know it's been 23 years since that kind of first you know iteration of the company and what i've done in 23 years has been great but i you know i'm not even 40 yet and mm. so i'm now thinking you know what's the next big thing and what does that look like yes you're too young for midlife crisis yeah. right yeah but, <laughs> Not really. but,
0: but it's uh you've, you've lived uh, you've lived what most of us live over 40 years in half that time so I get it but I do remember it's funny when you said Don Coleman I guess it was, so at Chrysler um, for those listening that's how I met Tina when I was alluding to it at the introduction I was I was running um, marketing at Chrysler uh, during the Daimler Chrysler years and Don Coleman was CEO of Global Hue, which was our multicultural agency, and he, I I guess, I don't even remember the connection, but you said that it must have been, must have recommended I meet you. And I will never forget you walking into my office and sitting there. You had a couple of people with you. I feel like they were family members. I,
1: I, I, I've had several siblings who have worked for me, mm-hmm. for
0: sure. And yeah. I was like... Wow, this woman is so young and I was I remember just being so impressed I was like okay I totally get it she's she's amazing so that's it's Um, I didn't realize that we were one of the first though I'm not surprised yeah. I mean you were so young but um, and also
1: someone like Don right yeah. I mean I was in college and he just said you know what we and we had a great network but you know Don I think for a lot of us who you know are young or African American in this field you know Don was who taught us how to kind of really be able to professionally service advertising agencies, for sure. He was he was great. Yeah. Still is great. Still is great. Powerhouse. Oh, I'll never forget. I mean, we were prepping to pitch you guys. And to see a CEO who had built, you know, the reputation he had practicing this pitch in the room 12 hours let's go again, let's go again. I'm like, he could have farmed it. No, he was, like, in it, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, this I'm so lucky to, like, watch a genius work, really, and to see that he's doing the work when he, you know, at that stage, Don could have just said, I'll be there at the meeting, and they were just, it was just a really genius, like, creative fun place and it was like kind of one of those like right time right place you get to be with the right people and and there's so many of us i think who are like working practitioners who have had some kind of influence from don and ron franklin and a lot Mm -hmm. of the team from from that time they were they were powerful still i mean they just and
0: and very personally invested to your point i mean don was on my speed dial all the time i mean whenever i wanted and he had a whole team servicing us i mean and he was just always there he just felt personally committed is. It's great to have that.
1: And understood culture and where culture was evolving and kind of genius at moving clients Mm -hmm. in the direction of culture. And I think one of the things that happened, it's been interesting to watch is, you know, the rise of the voice of the consumer. I think I was on the first wave of young people need to have a voice. But also I think looking at the kind of moving from that era of, right, like the big ad people to now consumers are driving culture and what that looks like. It's been a huge, I think, evolution for all of us. Yeah. So
0: I'm going to move forward a little bit to um, to more recent times. And I've been, um, I think I told you um, previously that the podcast, I like to, I have sort of a, a question I've coined, which is about holy shit moments or Hoshimos, these things that, <laughs> That I think uh, they they're a major pivot point, point. Um, and you have a, a great story. I say great. It's a it's a great story because you you had such a, a learning moment, and it was very transformational for you um, when you had a, a big client who um, maybe was not was not who you thought.
1: Yeah. Um, It's interesting because I like to frame this by saying it took until I was maybe 35 years old, (laughs) so 19 years in business to have something like this happening. You have to understand, like I've only ever worked for myself, right? And Mm -hmm. so when I hear friends talk about issues with diversity in the workplace or inclusion issues, they're not issues I face, right? Because by nature, my workplace is diverse and it's inclusive and I don't think about some of these things. And so when I was presented with this serious challenge of just, you know, view work in multicultural or, you you know, first of all, this is the first time I was kind of presented with this space. We are a general market, you know, primarily thought of millennial agency. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, while we're certified, we don't really ha- like go out and recruit work based on that at all. And so um, it's a really nuanced situation. And I was put in a position where I was going to have to do something that just did not agree with my personal values. It just and I knew deep down it wasn't the right thing Mm -hmm. to do. And so um it was a hard lesson. It meant a loss of, you know, fifty million dollars to our company. And, you know, I'm a boutique agency. Anyone knows that fifty million dollars is is transformative, Mm -hmm. you know, but I remember my CFO saying, like, there is no question here. You will go to jail. Like, like you will be left holding the bag. This is a bad thing. And I, you know, in that moment, you think, I want to tell everyone about this horrible thing that happened to me. And then you realize, but what am I going to do to my career, to the agency? You know, is this the best thing? And it, it was a lot of learning because I think sometimes we see this play out in TV or in the movies and then like the good guy wins and Mm -hmm. it's so, and in real life, the good guy isn't always going to win, you know? And I think eventually, yes, you know, I, am I happy? I didn't take that business really happy. I didn't take that business. Um, But I think about the loss and what, what could have been for the agency had we been able to capitalize on that opportunity and do the work we wanted to do, but it just came packaged in a way that just it, it wouldn't work it couldn't work well i th- you know if not only that it was
0: packaged i think i remember um, the story but also that you i think it's and this is you had come through this life you I mean, being an entrepreneur being so successful sort of a a field and field of dreams sort of scenario and you kind of ran across this which was like a major disappointment um but you had also mentioned that it really came home to roost. I think I think you said your CFO made you sit silently, Anna.
1: Oh, that was tough. That was... Call. Yeah. yeah. Well, so there was a call where it's like, okay, this isn't going to happen. And we know you've spent all this money making this happen. And so we're going to talk about what we're going to pay you. And I, I had no interest in that mm-hmm. conversation. He said, no, I think you need to listen to this. And in listening to someone just like pick apart, no, we don't want to pay for that. No, we're not going to do that. And you realize like wow, you're so wrong. And and I think about a lot of colleagues who have grown up in this industry who maybe have had to deal with these situations on a daily basis, right? This is one mm-hmm. thing that happened to me and I've moved on. But I think about people who exist in the environment where this is just how they're seen, right? They're just a number on a checklist. And I, you know, for me, I, I felt like it made me really... You know, there's a difference between empathy and sympathy. And I went from, oh, I sympathize with your situation to now I empathize. And I know what it feels like to, you know, I remember talking to a friend and saying, you know, it's so interesting. At this point, we'd had about maybe 180 clients. I said, I have 179 clients who hired me because I was the best at what I was doing. And that's what they wanted. I have this one situation where the only reason this company looked at me is because I checked a box. A diverse box and look at how this is fallen apart and so it's it's created when i think about you know diversity there's so much that the, mm-hmm. there's so many different layers to it where i'm like the only time in business i can think about from from my marketing career that this thing happened it was because i checked the box and so was i not taken seriously as a partner was that not why they hired me because they didn't fully value what i was bringing to the table and they thought I was just gonna do whatever because I checked the box. And so it, it makes me think a lot about, you know, when certain people are, are when we're in the workplace and how reviewed and, and that I posted something recently on Instagram where I talked about the difference between diversity and inclusion and belonging. And I think we have to move past the discussion of just diversity because that's not working. Mm-hmm. You know, inclusion is 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 we're getting closer, but it's really creating a place and space where everyone belongs. And I think um, you know, when I look at marketing and advertising, what's happening right now, we, we like to say that this is like multicultural or, you know, these are, you know, minority marketing. I'm like, well, the minority has now become the majority. And so right. how do we change the landscape of what that looks like? Because from a business perspective, when you have agencies of record who are not diverse, there's a lot of money on the line, right? And right. so it's creating, you know, what happened to me for four years ago it's going to happen over and over again now because there are people who need to lead the work from a creative perspective because that is what the consumer looks like. And how are they going to be empowered to do that? Because the financial, um, you know, the ramifications of that of that change, I don't know how these big companies are going to take that on. And so I think I'm sitting kind of <laughs> as a person just, and probably you two were just consciously observing this, but it is the big thing that's got to get figured out, I think. Yeah. Well, and I, so, and I think, you know, you've,
0: you've come to these places and you had this very pot i just for for me and again i had the benefit of knowing you when you were younger this very altruistic idealistic
1: absolutely um
0: individual and and it it's sad we all become realists eventually because life just always will eventually throw us something like this and i but what i love about your story is how it's you had this sort of bump and it it switched you maybe from being a pure idealist to a bit more of a realist but yet you maintain that optimism and that belief in people that you know this was one out of 180, whatever that percentage is, it's certainly less than one percent. Um, but it, it kind of happens again. I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> right? It's a it's it's a lesson that sometimes we have to learn more than once.
1: It is, but I and again, they show up in different forms, right? This was just a, you know, I think the more recent one I was mm-hmm. talking to you about. Um, and I think, because I try to do the right thing, sometimes we assume other people do and things happen. And, you know, we're often, you know, all doing the best that we can sometimes. But there, are, I do think that there are oppo- you know, opportunities when we can show up as our best selves and for whatever reason we choose not to. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I had a, a recent situation where, you know, it was just a compensation issue, you know, around something unrelated to my day to day. And I just was not properly compensated for the work that was put in. And, you know, there are different things I could have done about it. I talked to, you know, great lawyers who said, honestly, the best thing you can do is just walk away. Um, Walk away from that company and that experience. And, you know, what I realized, it was the first time I had to actually ask for what I thought I deserved. You know, when you're an agency, there are budgets and people have budgets. So there isn't always that need to i'm not doing like a salary negotiation right right? so i don't know how to go in and like ask for what i deserve but this is the first time i had to do it and i remember saying to a friend it's fine that they didn't give it what i needed to learn in that moment was how to ask and to flex that muscle i never had to flex before so that the next time i can sit down and i know how to negotiate i know what i need to ask for i know what this should look like and I won't make that mistake again. And I I always say even to my team, we're going to make mistakes every day. The goal is to not make the same mistake again, right? So what happened in that agency scenario, that's never going to happen again. You know what happened in in this situation, um that's never going to happen again. Mm. And but it, it it's interesting because I do always come from the perspective of well, of course they're going to do the right thing. And you know because you would. Yeah, uh, And if I had that to give, that's what I would do. But then you realize, well, there are different sets of experiences, right? I have a set of experience where I started at 16 and then I kind of had this little bubble and I've grown. And so I don't know what it's like to compete against. And if I'm even competing against another agency, I mean, do I really know? It's just a client that comes at the end of the day and says, we're going to hire you or not, right? right? So I'm not like in the throes of like competition. Mm -hmm. And so just it's always a reminder of the fact that, you know, I just don't live in this way. But I think what I'm also encouraged by is when I talk to younger people, they know that there's a better way of doing business. And so, you know, I think the last few years, unfortunately, our general culture, you know, I I love your phrase, that culture eats strategy Mm -hmm. for lunch, right? And I think our culture right now is not the nicest. Mm -hmm. I think it's mean and, you know, winner take all, and I'm going to call you a loser. And, you know, it's, but Social I, media sort of creates that ability yeah, to to just be mean. But I think what's okay about that is we're now making our way to the other side. Now that we've done that and we realize that's not great, we're going to kind of migrate over. And that's why when we see an explosion like Me Too, you know, I was talking to a friend the other day about my sabbatical and the need. I'm like, I just need to get away from business this way you know it doesn't mean i don't like marketing i don't want to sell that stuff anymore right it's just i'm not that interested in that i'm interested in the best use of my skills whether it's you know bringing my books and and the message in Mackenzie blue to a bigger audience or or i just want to take those skills and do something that for me is more personally fulfilling and it, i'm not trying you know i'm being like oh i'm gonna do this greater good now i i want to do work that i love but I've just decided I don't like that anymore. And that would happen with the agency. I'm like, you know, I have to remove myself from that because I'm not – I could. I think you come to a place, right, a fork in the road where I could say I'm going to double down on the agency and we're going to get really big and we're going to go, you know, bigger, go home. Or I'm just going to do something else that I really like to do. And that's kind of I think more where I'm moving towards is that's going to happen. They can have all of that. I have no interest over there. It's so – now i i've
0: had the pleasure of of interviewing many successful people lots of them women and there is a thematic thread coming through several of them of this taking a moment and pulling yourself out um so your sabbatical others it, it's some of them it's it's less formal less thought out they just sort of you know are the breaking point and they have to get away but i think it's it's what i what i hear from you and and it seems very symbolic is you're still that same 16-year-old girl who is, you, you've got this sort of passion, um, whatever it is for, you know, whether it's the same sort of thing, but it's um, this need to be true to yourself and to follow where you, your heart leads you. And I think that optimism, um, I think it'll serve you well. I'm just, I'm excited because I know you speak at Wharton. I know you speak to students. I know you're writing these Mackenzie Blue books for, for teens and tweens. So, I'm just excited to see what you do over these uh, these next few months on your sabbatical. Do you have any anything you want to share about things like trajectories and things you're exploring?
1: Um, I'm reading a lot, which I love to do anyway, but just reading for pleasure is great. Um, and I've always done that just to kind of flex that muscle. Um, and I've realized over the last few years I really love, love, love advising companies. There's mm-hmm. something about... Um, You know, having been a marketing practitioner for 20 plus years and knowing how it works and being able to help a company make the right decisions and pairing the right agencies with the right, you know, internal team and helping, you know, to make strategic Mm -hmm. hires that I love. um, And I want to do more of that. I think there are so many amazing young entrepreneurs who are creating really game-changing companies. You know, I just came from a meeting with a company I'm advising and I'm really 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 excited about this product and i think it's going to change lives i think it's really going to help people live healthier and i love you know advising that Mm -hmm. you know i was talking to a friend who um is running for senate and i i want to help however i can help and i'm super excited about what she's doing in her platform and i'm like that's that's something i couldn't i wouldn't have the headspace for if i were actively working on big client launches and so i think i'm just happy to um I don't know. I feel like, you know, as a marketer, our brains are for hire a lot of times Mm -hmm. and we're just kind of letting other people use that mm-hmm. brain power and i'm happy just to own that 100 percent for myself and what i want to focus on right now and if i want to take a day and sit with a friend and brainstorm and i don't have anywhere else to be that feels great and if i want to you know i've been doing a lot of orange theory which i don't know it's fun yeah <laughs> and i love that the woman who who created orange theory you know did it when she was i think over 50 and yeah. you know her whole philosophy around it so i'm like okay this feels, this feels great so you know it's just no real plans a lot of travel that that is one thing I'm, I'm doing three weeks in australia and new zealand and so you know a lot of just whatever feels nice and you know i'm just for me it's about um just like a season of being inspired and just looking at you know next week i'll be um giving a talk for a friend who is doing something really great you know um for female entrepreneurs and i get to talk about marketing and so um just things like that where you know if it feels great and i want to try and it feels right then that's what i'm going to do Good for you. It, it probably is very
0: freeing. I mean, yeah. is it, is it also feel awkward and uncomfortable because you're, you're so used to having sort of this agenda or does it just feel like a deep breath?
1: I just feel, you know, I have always felt like I'm just going to do what I want to do. I know it sounds weird because I had this career that kind of mm-hmm. just happened, but I always felt like if tomorrow I don't want to do it, I'm not doing it. Like when I sat, you know, six years into it, in my advisor's office and said, I might go to law school and this was fun, but maybe I'll do something else. So I've never felt tied to it and I've never been wrapped up in that persona at all i've always felt like that's that was a piece of my life and and the public took the story and ran with it in a way that they do because it's fun if it weren't me i'd be like well that's kind of a cool story but i never really bought into it it was just like this is what i'm doing and it's fine i'll do something else and also i think going back to our earlier conversation i think my family has a lot to do with that when you're one of six you definitely are not the priority right mm-hmm. so there's you know it's all about everyone doing it and i have five amazing siblings who just are doing amazing work. And so um, I never really had that moment of sitting back and saying, well, you know, let's focus on me. It's always been, okay, what's the next right thing to do? And that, that's where I am is saying, okay, this is where I am right now. I can't do one more project on X right now. And six months from now, I might find a company I fall in love with or a job I fall in love with. But for now, this is where I'm at. And I'm going to stay here for as long as I want to be in this place. It's
0: amazing. I... I so appreciate you sharing your story and your backstory, um, and I, I think it's super inspirational and it gives, for me, gives me hope, I know listening to you, that's just, I'm just going to do what feels right, what's good. It's, um, it's soft and we feel tethered, and um, it's it's amazing. And you, just for the record, reading it, you are really all that, so it really is impressive. <laughs> thank so, you. But thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Thanks.